right. It's great to be together. And like uh, Dan mentioned just a moment ago, the guy that was up here, if you are uh, a guest with us here today, if it's your first time at Grace or you're just kind of checking us out, I just want to say thanks so much for being here. And Dan said it so well. Uh, we hope you feel welcome because you are welcome. And uh, we count it an honor and privilege that you would want to spend some time with us here together today. So thanks for being with us. And you can probably tell, by the way, if you are a guest or if you're just joining us, that you're actually catching us in the middle of a series that we're in, a sermon series that we're in, that we're calling Jesus Come and See. And just to kind of catch you up to speed with what it is that we're talking about in this series, basically we said that it's kind of our goal and it's our hope in this series to replace what we've been calling a secondhand version of Jesus with a firsthand encounter with Jesus. And what we meant by that, quite simply, is this. We said that all of us in our society, that every single one of us begins our perception and our understanding of Jesus based off of a version that we've inherited. And so this is true of all of us, right? And so maybe for some of you, uh, your first perception or understanding of Jesus is something that was inherited to you from your parents. And so your parents were the ones who kind of gave you the first picture and understanding of Jesus that you had. For some of you, maybe you inherited your understanding of Jesus from some kind of religious tradition that you grew up in. Or maybe for some of you, maybe you didn't grow up in church or whatever, and maybe your understanding of Jesus was something that was passed down to you from, from the media or from kind of our culture and those type of things. But here's what we said. We said all of us begin with an inherited secondhand version of Jesus, something that's been handed to us from somebody else. But we said that our hope is that we don't stop there, that even though we all start there, that we don't want to stop there, that there becomes a need for us to come and see him for ourselves. There comes a time when we need to come and see Jesus's life. We need to come and see his teaching. We need to come and investigate the claims that he made about himself. And we have to deal with those things sort of on an individual, personal basis. There comes a time in our life when we have to do that. And so that's what we're doing in this series. One of the ways we've been explaining the series is we said that this series is an, inv is an invitation into an investigation. And so it's an invitation, uh, regardless of where you might be in your faith journey. Uh, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not. This is an invitation to everyone, regardless of where you are, into an investigation to really look at Jesus, look at his life, look at his teachings, so on and so forth. Now, you might remember, if you've been with us, the way we've been conducting this investigation is we've actually been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew, some of you might know, is a book of the Bible that's found in the New Testament. But we said that this is actually much more than just another book of the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew is actually one of the earliest first century eyewitness historical accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in our possession. So Matthew was a guy who witnessed Jesus' life. He was, a, he was an eyewitness to the things of Jesus, and he would have recorded those things and preserved them for us. And so that's how what we're doing. We're kind of working our way through this gospel, investigating the life of Jesus. And so today, as we continue this investigation, we're going to pick it up again, and we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, if you would go ahead and grab it, if you would do that, please, and if you would open up and join me in Matthew chapter 19, <clears throat> That is where we're going to be spending our time here today is in Matthew 19. And if you, by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible with you or if you don't have a Bible app on your device, feel free to make use of one of our Bibles that are in the chairs there. Uh, those black Bibles, page 689 is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 19 there. And please hear me, if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would actually love it if you would just take one of ours. And you can make that a gift. We think it's really important that you have a Bible that you can call your own. So Matthew 19 is where uh, we are going to go. Now, um, before we jump into this, you might remember 
remember, if you were with us last week, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 17. This week we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 19. And you probably noticed that we skipped something. We would have skipped Matthew chapter, help me out, 18. Right? I'm just making sure you guys are paying attention. So Matthew 18. And some of you might be thinking, why would you skip Matthew 18? Is it because it's not important? And so let me just clarify. Uh, the reason we're skipping Matthew 18 is not because we don't think it's important. We're actually skipping Matthew 18 because we believe it's too important to spend one week on. And so what I want to do is I actually want to take a moment and actually point you back to about a year ago, we did a whole sermon series based off of Matthew 18. That series was called Resolve. Um, that entire series is Jesus is teaching on conflict resolution and issues of forgiveness. And so let me just tell you that if, if you're a person, especially if you find yourself dealing with conflict resolution issues or relational tension or unforgiveness, if that's something that you find that you're dealing with, I want to point you back to that series. I think it's a good resource for you. In that series, we talk about eight steps to conflict resolution that come right from Jesus. So that was Matthew 18. So you can go back and listen to that. But this week, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 19. Um, so... One of the things uh, that you probably know about me, if you've been coming to the Medina campus for any length of time, is that my wife and I have four kids. And uh, you know that because I talk about them all the time, uh, probably talk about them too much, but uh, they're my kids and they're kind of a big part of my life, obviously. And so I talk about them quite a bit. So my, my wife and I have these four kids. Uh, we have three boys, three boys, and then we have one little princess. And that, our little princess, she's number three in the lineup, which I like because it means she's got two older brothers to protect her and one behind her. So she's got an entourage around her at any time. But I can just tell you about my daughter, and some of you know her. Some of you watch her back in Power Kids, and we pray for you. Um, the thing about my daughter is that she is by far, out of all of our kids, she's the craziest. Like, by a long shot, she's the craziest. She is the spunkiest. She is the sassiest. She thinks she's in control of everything and everybody, and she is the most fearless. And I'll admit it, she's my favorite. I'll just go ahead and say it. She's my favorite of them all. So we, 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 love, we love her. She's, she's amazing. Just to give you a little bit of a window into her personality, just so you understand a little bit what she's like, one of the things that my wife and I um, have been teaching our kids to say from a very young age is we say this statement, and it goes something like this. We'll say to our kids, we'll say, what did God make? And their response is, everything. God made everything. And then we'll follow it up and we'll say, why did God make everything? And the response is, for his glory. And then we'll say, who made you? And they'll say, God did. And we'll say, and why did God make you? And the answer is, for his glory, right? And so again, it's just a way of us trying to instill in our kids this, un this, this understanding that we are all created to glorify God. So we kind of teach our kids to do that. So anyway, I was teaching this to Gracie. She's three years old right now. And uh, this is just a window into what her personality is like. I said, uh, I said Gracie, I said, um, who made everything? And she said, God. I said, that's right. And I said, why did God make everything? And she said, for Gracie. <laughs> and I was like... Wow, okay, so we got a lot to work with here. But that's her, that's her. So about a year ago, my family and I, so she was two at this time, we were at a swimming pool. And my boys, who are much older than she is, they can swim, and they were jumping off of the side of the deep end into the water. So they were doing, you know, cannonballs and all this kind of stuff, diving into the water. And so somewhere watching her brothers, my little two-year-old daughter was convinced, like convinced, that she could do what her brothers were doing. And so she, she looked at my wife and I, and she said, uh, Mom and Dad, I want to go jump in the deep water with my brothers. And we said, Gracie, 
you can't do that. He said, you're too small, you can't swim. If you want to jump into the water, you can jump off the shallow end and mom and dad will catch you. Well, she wasn't having that at all. And so she was like, no, I want to jump off of into the deep water like the boys. And we said, Gracie, you can't swim. You can't do it. You can't swim. And she said, yes, I can. I can swim. I'm big. I can do whatever they do. And we're like, no, you can't, Gracie. And so for the next half an hour, she about a half an hour, every opportunity she got to break away from us, she would make a beeline to the deep end. And she would try to jump into the water. And so my wife and I had to keep running after her. And we had to keep grabbing her and saying, Gracie, you can't jump off. You can't swim. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. No, you can't. We take her back and we chase her and we took turns doing this. And I'll just be honest, it was exhausting. And there was tears involved. And Gracie was crying too. And it was just this really, really bad situation. So after about a half an hour of chasing her, my wife looked at me and she said, this is just so exhausting. Can we just leave? And I remember I said, uh, I said well, before we leave, because everyone was having a good time. So I said, before we leave, I said, let's just try one more thing. I said, next time, next time, she said, she's like just convinced that she's going to jump. I said, just let her do it. Just let her do it. Let her jump into the deep water. Now, mind you, I am not advocating that this is good parenting <laughs> at all. Okay, so hear me on this. But I said, just let her jump in. And my wife goes, but she can't swim. She'll sink to the bottom. I said, well, we know that. I said, but she's not convinced that that's the case. I said, so just less. I'll be right there. I'll be right there, but just let her do it. So, so sure enough, we're like, okay. So she's running. She's like, I can do it. I can swim. I'm big. She jumps off the deep. I mean, she's fearless. She just jumps right off into the deep water, and she goes right under the water. Now, I'm right there, and I'll be honest with you. I gave it a second. <laughs> I was like... One, two, and then, and, then I, and then I went down, I was like, okay, and I grabbed her. And I gotta tell you, this little girl, this little girl who spent a half an hour running from me suddenly clung on to me. She just, she clung to me with all of her strength. And I pulled her up out of the water and man, her eyes were big and her lip was quivering and it was clear that she was scared. And she looked at me and she goes, daddy. I said, yeah, Gracie. And she said, I started to sink. I said, I know, I know, sweetheart. And then she said, Daddy, eyes real big. She said, Daddy. I said, yes, Gracie. And she said, I can't swim. <laughs> I said, I know, Gracie. We've been trying to tell you this for half an hour. And then, and then she, I'm, I'm not kidding, for like the next like, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, she just was clink. She would not let me go. And she's like, don't let me go. Don't let me go. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And after a little bit, she calmed down. And after she calmed down, she goes, she goes, daddy. I said, yes, Gracie. She said, can we do that again? <laughs> and I was like, you're, you are going to be something else. You're going to be a lot of fun. So, so, so listen, I know that at this point, some of you might be questioning my parenting skills, which is totally understandable. But listen, I, I tell you that because of this. I, I am convinced, I am convinced, I have come to believe that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for somebody who is dead set convinced of something that you know is going to harm them or you know is dangerous to them, sometimes the most loving thing you can do might appear a little abrupt and it might appear a little extreme. I believe that sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone in that situation is let them sink a little bit so that they can see they can't swim. And here's why I tell you all of that is because I think if you can get your head around that, 
you're actually going to see Jesus interacting with a gentleman in a very similar way. And I think we're gonna see a conversation where Jesus very much has to do something similar uh, than what I just talked about with Gracie. So what am I talking about? Well, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. So we're gonna see a story starting off in verse 16. This is actually a very famous story in the Bible. Some of you have probably read this or have heard of this story before, but it's a very famous conversation that Jesus has with this gentleman. And so here's what the Bible says. It says, just then, there was a man who came up to Jesus and he asked, teacher, what, must good, what, what, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Okay, so the Bible is gonna tell us that Jesus is about to have this interaction with this one particular man. Now, here's the interesting thing. As we read through this story, we're gonna find out we actually don't know a whole lot about this guy. Uh, we never learn his name. We never learn, learn the specifics of what his circumstances were. But if you read through the gospels, what you're gonna find out about this guy is that there's actually three things that we know. There's three things that we know about this man. And here they are. We're gonna find out that this man is rich, that he is young, and that he's a ruler. So these are the three things, if you read through the Gospels, that we can gather about this man. He is a rich, young ruler. In fact, some of you have Bibles, and the heading that's above this story might say the story of the rich, young ruler. It's a pretty famous story. And I think that while the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about this guy, it just tells us these three things, I actually think the Bible is telling us a whole lot about this guy. Because think about this for a minute. Are these three things right here not the three things that most people in our society are spending all of their time and all of their energies and all of their efforts to get. Riches, wealth, youth, power. The, this, this right here is the holy trinity of Western society. It's the things that many of us are pursuing. It's the things that many of us are going after. It's the thing that many people in the world are pursuing. He is rich, he is young, and he is a ruler. It's actually interesting, by the way, I was doing a word study on the word young because I was like, well, how young was he? And I thought it was interesting. So if you ever, if you ever find yourself questioning when exactly are you not young anymore, I actually have a biblical definition for you. So I looked it up in a Bible dictionary and the word young, here's what it literally would have meant in the Greek language. It is spoken of a young man in the prime and vigor of manhood up to the age of 40. So there you got it. When are you officially old? When you're 40. That's from the Bible. So if you happen to know someone in the room who's 40, uh, make sure you treat them nicely because you need to respect your elders. Um, take them to Bob Evans afterwards. See if you can get them an elder discount, right? Something like that. So, so if you're 40-year-old, there you go. There you have it. It's from the Bible. So this guy's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. He has everything from a worldly vantage point that most of us, quite honestly, are spending all of our time and all of our efforts going after. And he's got it all. And yet what's fascinating is you can see clearly by the way he asked Jesus this question that there must, he must see, he must sense that there's something missing. There's something missing. Even though he's got everything the world has to offer, he knows there's something that's missing because look at the question he asked Jesus. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? And so my guess is this guy, even though he has everything the world has to offer, he's starting to think about eternity. And he's starting to think about his relationship with God. And he's starting to think, man, am I living it right? Am I doing, am I doing good enough? And, and man, what about eternity? How do I know for sure what's gonna happen to me after I die? He's starting to think these big questions. And by the way, my, my guess is that maybe some of you in this room uh, can sympathize with this guy. And some of you might find yourself here this morning 
And maybe from an external standpoint, you do have a lot of the things that, that many people are pursuing in this world. Some of you are wealthy, some of you are young, some of you have power and authority or whatever, and other people might look at you and say, you got it all. But maybe there is this nagging suspicion inside of you that you're wondering, am I doing it right? Am I living it right? Am I okay with God? How do I know that I can have eternity? Can I have eternity? Some of you are actually here this morning because you're asking that very question. And so Jesus sees this man who's asking this question and he proceeds to respond to him. So look what he says in verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Uh, some of your translations might say, only God is good. Only God is good. So, so Jesus responds to him, why are you asking me about what's good? Only God is good. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, when I first read this passage years ago, Jesus' response actually confused me a little bit. And I remember reading it and thinking, why would, why would Jesus respond this way? Here's a guy who apparently has a very real question, an authentic question that he's asking Jesus. And it seems like Jesus is just being nitpicky, doesn't it? Like Jesus just picks the word. He's like, why did you use the word good? Like, why did you say that only God is good? And to me, I was like, man, that seems a little insensitive that Jesus would respond to this guy that way. But I want you to understand what I believe Jesus is doing here. Because I think if you read the rest of the passage, what you'll come to see is that I think that when Jesus hears this man's question, he discerns that there's something about his question that is deeply concerning to Jesus. And so Jesus says this, I think, to kind of mess with the guy. So just think about it for a minute. Think about the question this guy just asked Jesus. Just notice it again. It's an interesting question. Go back a verse to verse 16. Here's the question. Teacher, what, now notice this, what good thing, what good work, what good thing must I do, what do I have to do to get, to get eternal life? So, so you hear the question? This question, it's very clear, is asked from the foundation and off of the basis of an earning mentality. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what good thing, what good work must I do? What, what level of performance, what level of accomplishment, what level of earning must I do to get, to get, to earn eternal life. He's asking from a performance. He's asking from an earning standpoint. My guess is this guy has probably spent his whole life earning stuff. He probably earned his riches. He probably earned his status. He probably earned his reputation. And now he's coming to Jesus with that same frame of mind. Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And so Jesus, I think he sees that his question's Really weird. And so Jesus actually starts messing with him and he says to the guy, why are you asking me about what's good? You know, only God is good. In other words, nobody's good. Nobody's good. Only God is good. But then Jesus goes on and he starts to answer the guy. And look what Jesus says next. Jesus says, if you want to enter life, if you, if you're asking me, what do you need to do to enter eternal life? He says, and here's your answer. Keep the commandments. Just keep the commandments. That's what you need to, that's what you need to do to get eternal life is you gotta keep all of them, keep the commandments. To which, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, in the Old Testament, there is a large amount of commandments. Some of you might think there's only 10 commandments, but that's not true. In the Old Testament, did you know there are 613 commandments God gives to his people? 
613. And so Jesus looks at this guy and he says, yeah, if you want to get into eternal life, you just got to keep the commandments. And the guy's probably thinking, 613, that's a lot. And so he follows up with this next question. Which ones? Like, wow, oh, that's a lot. Like, can we, can we be a little bit more specific? Like, which exact commandments do I need to keep, Jesus, so that I can get this eternal life thing? And so Jesus, I love this. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus just lists some. He just picks a few. And so here's what Jesus says. He says, uh, okay, um, don't murder anybody. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't steal. Don't steal. You shouldn't give false testimony. In other words, don't lie. Don't lie. And then he says, honor your father and mother and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus just picks some, just throws them out at the guy. Now, um, there's something here that I thought was really interesting that I, I picked up on this week that I've never noticed before. And I still don't know what to do with it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But it's interesting, when Jesus gives this guy a, a list of commandments, the ones he chooses are all from the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the reason I think that's interesting is because the first half of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God. That's what the first half of the Ten Commandments about. The second half are all about our relationship with each other. And so for some reason, and I can't quite figure it out, Jesus chooses to give him the second table of the Ten Commandments. And so he says, yeah, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, uh, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, treat people the way you want to be treated. There you go, do those. And look how this man responds. This man responds, verse 20, I've done all of it. All that I've kept, Jesus, I've done that. I'm good. To which I think Jesus and probably all of us in this room are thinking, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. You're telling me you have never lied before. Is that what you're telling me? You're telling me that you always treat people the way that you want to be treated. There's never been a time that you've treated another person the way you don't. Is that what you're telling me, right? But this guy, I believe that this guy is authentically convinced that he's done it. I think he's authentically convinced that, yeah, you know, even though I'm not perfect, I, I'm pretty good at that stuff. I mean, for the most part, I try to live this way. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm guessing that's what he's convinced of. And then he continues. He says to Jesus, what do I still lack? Now, again, again, I just want you to notice, look at his language. His language, it is clear he is in a performance-based mentality because he believes that eternal life is found in something you do and is found in something you add. What good thing must I do? What must I still add so that I can have eternal life? And so Jesus, I think, discerns this guy's heart. Look what it says in verse 21. Jesus answered. Now, before we read Jesus' response, I think it's really important that we insert something here that Matthew uh, leaves out of his account, but the Gospel of Mark includes. And I think it's really important. The Gospel of Mark is going to tell us that right before Jesus says this, Mark says, Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. Jesus looked at this guy and he was full of love for him. And I think that's really important, by the way. And the reason I think that's important is because what Jesus is about to say next to this man is not because he's annoyed with him. It's not because he's frustrated with him. It's not because he's like, you dummy. What Jesus is about to say to this man is because he looks at him and he loves the guy. He loves him. I think what that means, by the way, I think it means that Jesus didn't just look at his face. I think it meant that Jesus would have looked right into his heart. 
And he would have looked right into this guy's soul and he would have seen that this man was totally convinced, dead set convinced about something that Jesus knew was dead wrong. This guy was fully convinced of something that Jesus knew was ultimately dangerous to him. And I think, and listen, and this is so important, and I believe that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for someone who is so dead set convinced of something that you know is gonna be harmful to them is to do something a little abrupt, is to say something a little extreme. Sometimes I think the most loving thing you can do is let someone sink a little bit to show them they can't swim. And so Jesus loves this guy. And he says, I love you, I love you. And what I'm gonna say is gonna hurt a little bit. And here it is, so Jesus says. If you wanna be perfect, that's a tall order. If you wanna be perfect, complete. By the way, Matthew 5, some of you might remember several weeks ago, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He said this, if you wanna enter the kingdom of God, you have to be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. That's what you gotta be, perfect. So Jesus says to this guy, if that's what you're going for, if you're asking me how good do you need to be, if you wanna be perfect, he says, you gotta go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then you're gonna have treasure in heaven, and then you come and you follow me. And so Jesus looks at this man and he loves him, and he sees all the way down into his heart, he sees all the way down into his soul, and he says, if you wanna be perfect, you need to get rid of all that stuff, sell it all, give it to the poor. He says, and you come and you enter into a relationship and you follow me. And my guess is when this man heard this, he must've been shocked by that. And I think it's clear because look at his response. The Bible says, verse 22, when the young man heard this, when he heard what Jesus said, he left. He walked away sad. He walked away sad. Some of you have translations that say he walked away grieved. Um, it's interesting, the word sad or grieved is also used in the book of Romans. It's sometimes translated offended. He walked away sad and grieved and offended. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff. So Jesus looks at him, he says, listen, if you wanna be perfect, take everything you have, sell it and give it to the poor and then you come follow me. And the Bible says that this guy just walks away sad, walks away grieved, walks away offended. And so he leaves. And the Bible says that Jesus is left there with his disciples. And then he turns to them. Look at this, verse 23. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter to the, the kingdom of heaven. To which I'm guessing the disciples were probably asking the same question some of you are asking right now. How hard, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus actually clarifies. Look what he says next in verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier, it is easier for a camel uh, the largest animal known in this region of the world at this time. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the smallest gap that these people would have been aware of. It is easier for that to happen than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this statement, my guess is some of you have actually heard this before. It is one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And what I find so fascinating is that when Jesus says this, there are many people and many commentators throughout the years who have tried to take kind of the seriousness and the scandalous nature of what Jesus said, and they've tried to make it more palatable. So I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe some of you have heard this before. There are some people that explain that what Jesus is saying here is that he's not talking about a literal needle. 
uh, that the eye of the needle is actually referring to, uh, there was like a, a small, narrow entry gate in Jerusalem, and it was so small and so narrow that if you wanted to pass through it, you had to unload your camel, and you had to get down on your knees, and that's how you got in. And so some people said, well, that's what it's talking about. Jesus is basically saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to unload your possessions, and you have to get down on your knees. So it's not impossible. It's just kind of hard to do. But let me just tell you, I did a little bit of research on that. There is no historical or archaeological evidence for a, uh, a, a eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem. In fact, I thought this was kind of ironic. What I discovered is that that whole theory was actually uh, based off of a group of people in Israel who created that story so that they could make money from tourists. Isn't that ironic? That's ironic in light of this statement, right? So, so it's not that. Some people would look at this and say, as a way of trying to make it more palatable, they'd say, well, it's not a literal camel, and so the word camel in the Greek language is real closely associated to the word rope. And so what Jesus is saying is that it's, it's easier to pass a rope through the eye of a needle than for a rich man. To, so it's not impossible, but if you really focus and you really work at it, you can make it happen, right? And I'm just saying, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point. One commentator I read went as far to say this. It's possible to pass a camel through the eye of the needle if you liquefy the camel. <laughs> to which I was like, that's just gross, man. That's, I don't think that's Jesus' point. I don't think the, that's, what's the point? Here's the point. You can't. You can't. It's not possible. I think that's the point. And I think this is only further uh, validated by the response of the disciples. Because look what the Bible says next in verse 25. So verse 25, it says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. The word astonished means to be struck with a blow. So the disciples were like, what? What? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then they asked the very logical next question. Then who? Then who can be saved? See, in other words, here, here's what the disciples were saying. They were saying, if that guy can't get in, I mean, he's rich, he's young, he has authority, he's a moral guy. My guess is everyone that was in that setting would have known his name. This is the guy that everyone wanted to be like. This is the guy who everyone wanted to be part of their congregation because he was an upstanding guy. He was a good dude. And my guess is that when Jesus said he can't get in, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than that guy to get in the kingdom of heaven. They're like, what? They're like, if he can't get in, then who? Who's getting in? I love the way one pastor and commentator said it. Uh, he said, uh, if, we could, if we could contextualize in our society what Jesus is saying here, he said it might go something like this. Jesus would say, if you wanna get into the kingdom of God, you have to be fast. If you want eternal life, you have to be fast. To which we would say, how fast? And Jesus would look and say, you know Usain Bolt, the fastest man on earth? He's not even close to fast enough. And all of us would be greatly astonished and we would say, well, if not him, then who? Then who? And I think this is where Jesus makes his point. So Jesus says, that's my point exactly. Because with man, it's not possible. That's my point. If you're asking me what good thing must you do, the answer is you can't. You can't. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. See, see here's, here's the flaw in the rich young ruler's thinking. 
the rich young ruler believed, again, that you could earn, that you could earn eternal life. He believed what, quite honestly, many people believe, and that's this. If you're good enough, if you're good enough, you can get eternal life. And if you're not good enough, you don't get eternal life. You don't get eternal life. And what's fascinating to me is that this continues to be probably the most widely believed basis of how eternal life works, even to this day. But if you actually think about it, while it might make sense at face value, it actually doesn't make sense at all if you think about it more deeply. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'll illustrate it this way. So I created, I actually um, based this off of something called evangelism explosion. But I, I built something that I call, uh, this is the goodometer. Okay, so let's just think about this for a second. So on this side, uh, you've got bad. On this side, you've got good. And for many people, the way that, that we think eternal life works is we think this, good people get eternal life and bad people don't. Good people go to the good place and bad people go to the bad place. If you ask a lot of people today, how do you know that you'll have eternal life? They'll say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm a pretty good person. And you know, like I said, at face value, that seems like it makes logical sense. But if you think about it more deeply, you find that it doesn't make sense at all. So let's just think it through a little bit. All right, so let's just say good people go to heaven and good people have eternal life. So if that, if that is the basis we're going off of, let's just think of a really good person. And so I think it's pretty safe to say, if we're all trying to think of a really good person that we'd look at and say, yeah, that is a morally good person. I think we could probably look and say someone like Mother Teresa would probably fit that bill. My guess is none of us would disagree that Mother Teresa morally is probably better than every single one of us in this room. Uh, here is a woman who has dedicated her life to serving the poor in Calcutta. Uh, she has vowed to a life of poverty to do that, and she's giving her life for other people. I'm just saying, she morally, if there's anyone who's like a good person who's good enough to get into eternal life, I think we'd all look and say, someone like that, yeah, probably. Now, I think if you were to think about the flip side, right, if you were to take it to the further extreme, and you were to say, who would be a bad person, that all of us would be like, yep, that's a bad person, none of us would argue with that. I think it's pretty safe to say that, yeah, Adolf Hitler, right? I don't think there's any one of us that are like, actually, I think he was a pretty good guy. He had some good, none of us are saying that, right? We're all like, yeah, pretty, pretty bad dude, right? Now, if we go with that, Mother Teresa's good enough, Hitler's not good enough. Herein lies the problem. The problem is this. Then where is the line exactly? Like, where is it? So you might be saying, I'm not Mother Teresa. But you also might be saying, but I'm no Hitler, but here's the question, though. Where is the line? Where is it exactly? Or how about this? What if you are at 49.99999% and then you were to meet Jesus? What happens then? Is he like, you're out? You were just 0.01% out. When are you out? Or how about this? What if, what if right now you're at 51% because you came to church today, right? So you're at 51%. And then let's say on the way home, someone cuts you off and you put up a particular finger and you drop down to 49%. What happens then? Does that mean that if you were to die in that moment, that what you had just a moment earlier, you don't have anymore? You see, it doesn't work. It all falls apart. And the thing that's the problem with all of this is it's all based off of relativity. We're all comparing ourselves to each other. So we're all saying, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Hitler. You know what I think is interesting is usually when I get in a conversation with someone about this, maybe you've had this too. I just think that this is humorous. I'll say, I'll say to somebody, um, why do you think God should let you have eternal life? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. And then they'll usually say this, I've never, 
can you fill in the, the blank for me? I've never, I've never killed anybody, which I just think that is, that is hilarious that that's the standard. Like I've never killed anybody before, right? But you know, even that though, just think about that for a minute. Even that's relative. Maybe you're in this room and maybe you have killed somebody before. I don't know your story. Maybe you did. But you could say, well, I've killed someone, but I've never killed 10 people before. Or maybe you have killed 10 people before. I don't know your story. You could at least say this. You could say, I've killed 10 people, sure, but I've never listened to Nickelback. And I'm just saying, it's, it's, where is the line? And so Jesus, listen, this guy comes up to Jesus, and what is he asking him? He says, Jesus, like, what good thing do I need to do? What do I need to add so I can get eternal life? Like, how do I push this thing past 50%? And Jesus sees his question, and do you notice what he says? He says, listen, man, only God is good. You want the standard? It's not Mother Teresa. It's God. God. You gotta be perfect. And then he says, and so if you, if you want to, by your works, do this. He says, the only way is you gotta keep every commandment. And the guy says, I've done that. And Jesus goes, oh, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. And Jesus picks one. He says, let's just talk about the first commandment. You guys know what the first commandment is? Commandment number one of the 10 commandments. You should have no other gods before me. And so Jesus just says, well, let's just see how you're doing on number one. You know your wealth? That stuff that you put all of your hope and your trust and your faith in, you know that? Get rid of that. Come and follow me. And the guy walks away sad. He can't do it. Jesus says, you can't even keep the first commandment. You can't even keep the first one. And you know what I think is so sad? I think that if this man, I think that if this man would have just looked at Jesus and would have said, Jesus, I can't do that. I think Jesus would have said, right, exactly. That's what I've been trying to tell you. You can't swim. And so you need to cling to me. It's not possible with man. But with God, is, you need to get off this thing altogether. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't, and by the way, this man couldn't keep the commandments, and you know what? You can't either. You can't, and I can't. Anyone in this room ever tell a lie before? Show of hands, anyone tell a lie? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. <laughs> it's just like we're done. I don't even, argument's done. You can't keep them, I can't keep them, nobody can keep them, and that's Jesus's point. And so that begs a really important question then. Then who gets in? Then who gets in? None of us have kept them. We've all broken it. None of us are at God's standard. So who gets in? And listen, this is what I actually think this passage tells us who gets in. One of the things I love so much about this passage is, and by the way, this is just true anytime you read the Bible, you need to read the Bible in context. And what I want you to notice is right before this story of the rich young ruler, there is another story that happens immediately before this. And I don't think it's by coincidence. Look what the story is, though. Go back with me right before the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. And look what it says. It says, the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. So get the scene. Jesus is teaching or whatever. And the Bible says people keep bringing little children to Jesus. Now, little children, by the way, is the word that literally means babies or infants. So people were bringing babies to Jesus for him to bless them. I just want you to understand back in this time, uh, infant mortality rate was uh, 30%. And so, so people were probably desperate and they were, they were scared. And so they were bringing their babies to Jesus to have him bless them. 
And the Bible says that when this was happening, the disciples started to rebuke them. Started to rebuke, don't, don't, get the kids out of here. Get the kids out of here. Now, I know that might sound harsh to you and I, but let me, let me just defend the disciples a little bit. Back in this time, um, spending time with children was actually considered unwise. The rabbis would actually teach that. That doesn't make sense to us. We live in a very child-centric world today. Back then, rabbis would actually teach, if you want to be wise, you need to stay away from children because they're foolish. They talk about foolish things. They don't contribute anything anyway. And so if you want to be wise, you need to avoid children. In fact, one rabbi, first century rabbi, said, if you want to be wise, you need to avoid three things. Number one, late morning sleep, which you guys are doing okay. You made it to the 11 o'clock on that one. Number two, midday wine. College students, that's important. Number three, children's chatter. So you need to steer clear kids. Don't be around. So, so the disciples are basically saying, get the kids out of here. Get, he, this guy, don't you know Jesus is a rabbi? Don't you know he's the Messiah? Get the kids out of here. But Jesus turns and he rebukes the disciples. In verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. Now notice this. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Who gets in? Jesus says, these kind, these kind, such as these. Now, some of you are like, I'm confused. Is he saying that babies get in? Well, no. What Jesus is saying is, who, who is it who gets access into eternal life? And he, here it is. He says, you have to become like a baby. You have to become like an infant. And what does he mean by that? Well, think about this for a minute. What is the defining characteristic of a baby? They are, they are just need. Babies are nothing but need. Isn't that true? I love the way that Chuck Colson said it. Chuck Colson said, babies are appetite surrounded by noise. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty much true, isn't it? I, I know, I told you, my wife and I, we have four kids. Our youngest is 10 months. His name is Louie. I'll tell you, Louie's cute, and we love him. But he doesn't really contribute much. He doesn't pull his weight exactly, Right? So there's never been a time my wife and I have been talking and then Louis just adds something to the, you know, contributes something to the conversation that we're like, wow, that's a really insightful thing to say. Thank you for that contribution. It never happened, right? We've never went out to dinner and Louis says, you know what? You guys get me all the time. I got you this time. I got, I'm going to cover the bill, right? It's never happened. Some of you have college students and it still hasn't happened, right? And I'm just saying, what are babies? Babies are utterly dependent. They would not survive outside of the benevolence and care and love of another and so what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, here's who gets in. It's when you come without a resume, without your list of how good you've been, it's when you come with nothing but need. It's when you come and you say, I am relying on the benevolence and love of another because I can't swim. And so I'm clinging to you. And that's the only way we get in. So I think this whole conversation really causes us to ask three questions that I want us to kind of process through together. So I'm asking the band to come up. And I think in light of everything we just talked about, there's three questions that I want you to think about, to, kind of in light of what we talked about. And so here they are. Number one question is this. Do you believe, ask yourself, do I believe that God loves me and accepts me more if I do good things? So ask yourself that question. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, do you believe... Do you genuinely believe in your heart, somewhere deep down inside, that if you do good, God loves you more? Or maybe ask it the opposite way. If you do bad, God loves you less. Do you believe that? 
Is there something inside of your heart that believes that, man, I mean, some of you, maybe you had a really bad week this week and your heart was far from God and you knew you messed up like big time. Is there something inside of your heart that genuinely believes that God accepts you and loves you less because you've done bad and that if you can just get your act together for a week, then you'll be back in a good relationship with him? Is there something in your heart that believes that? And I think if that's the case, I think that reveals that we we always drift back into this performance-based mentality. We always drift back into an earning mentality. I have to earn favor with God. Now, I want you to hear me correctly. Those of us who follow Jesus, we're not anti-doing good works. We're very pro-doing good works. We should want to do good things. But we don't do good things because we're trying to earn God's favor. We do good things because we have God's favor. He's transforming us to become more like him. That's the first question. Second question, if God asked me today, if he asked you today, why should I allow you to have eternal life? How would you answer that question? So if Jesus was to look at you and say, why should I let you have eternal life? How would you respond? And can I just say, I think based on what we just read, that if you begin answering that question by saying, well, I, I'm trying. I try to be a good person. I go, to, I go to church sometimes. I, I don't listen to Nickelback, right? I think, I think that if you answer that question beginning with the word I, I think that based on what we just read, it's the wrong answer. I think, I think it always has to be Jesus. It's what he's done. You, know, you guys remember that scene when Jesus is on the cross? The Bible tells us that he's crucified between two criminals, and these two criminals had done crimes that were so heinous that they deserved capital punishment. Like this, this was not, these were not good guys. And the Bible tells us that one of these guys looked at Jesus and criticized him and mocked him. But the other guy who was on, on the cross next to Jesus, the Bible says that he looked at Jesus and he said, you've done nothing wrong. We've done something wrong to be here. You're innocent. And then he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, would you please remember me? And Jesus said, today, today, you will have eternal life today. You know, I can't help but wonder sometimes, this isn't in the Bible or anything, but I can't help but wonder what it must have been like when that man finally died and entered into eternal life. And I can't help but wonder if the angels were all there and they saw him and they might have been like, dude, how in the world did you get here? And my guess is that guy was just as shocked as they were. He was probably like, I don't know. All I can tell you is that the man on the cross said I could be here. And can I just tell you, I don't think there's any other answer for anybody else. I think for every single one of us, how did you get here? I don't know. I can just tell you. It's because the man on the cross, it's because of what he's done. I couldn't do it. I can't swim. Question number three, what's holding you back? What is holding you back from clinging to Jesus? For some of you, this whole message, you've been a little bit like nervous. And the reason you've been nervous is because you've been afraid that the application is that you need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you're like, oh, is he gonna say that? And let me just, just breathe a collective sigh of relief. The application is not that you have to sell it all and give it to the poor. You have to sell it all and give it to the church. I'm just kidding. Did you know this is the only time in all the gospels that Jesus tells anyone to do that? This is the only time. Uh, Jesus, I believe the reason is, Jesus expertly has a way of looking into our hearts and our souls. And he has a way of identifying the things that we put above him as God. Uh, To the woman at the well, he points to her men. 
He says, you've had five men and you're with another one. He says, that's your God. That's your God. To this man, he points at wealth. And I'm just asking, what would he point to in your heart? Maybe it is wealth. Maybe it is. Maybe for you, it, it, it's, it is relationships. Maybe it is an incessant need to be in control, whatever it is. Here's the question. What's holding you back? What is the thing that you look at and you put your trust in more than Jesus? What is the thing that is off limits to Jesus? He's not allowed to mess with. I think that's the thing he probably wants to mess with because he knows that he's the only one who's worth it. The sad thing is this guy walked away sad and he could have had, I think, something that was much better. You know, the thing we know about this guy is we don't know much, but we know this. He's no longer rich. He's no longer young and he's no longer a ruler. And everything he invested his life in is gone. And Jesus was offering something eternal. And so my question is, what's holding you back? And for some of you, quite honestly, today, today, you need to put a stake in the ground and you need to say, you know what? I am going to cling to Jesus. I'm gonna dedicate my life to him. Some of you, you've been with us for a while. You've been investigating Jesus. And listen, maybe it's time to be done investigating. And some of you, you have your reasons, but let's just be honest, drop the smoke screen for real. What's keeping you from it? What's keeping you from clinging to Christ? And I just encourage you to do that today. Do it today. And there's a way you can do that between your heart and God's heart. I wanna give you an opportunity. And so what we're gonna do is we're about to sing a song. It's called I Surrender. And if you genuinely wanna do that for the first time, I would encourage you to make this song your prayer. And you surrender to Jesus. You put a stake in the ground and you say, man, that's it. I'm following you. I'm trusting you. I'm clinging to Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, just want to say thank you that um, you love us enough and you care about us enough. Sometimes you're willing to say abrupt things and you're willing to do extreme things to reveal to us our inability Lord, sometimes we're convinced, we're dead set convinced of something that's harmful and dangerous to ourselves. And one of the most dangerous things that we could believe is that it's by our good works that somehow we can earn your favor. We can't, it's not possible. And so I pray that you would help all of us like children come to you. Help us to come with full dependence, not with a resume, not with a list of all the good things that we've done but down on our knees, like children, full of dependence, relying on the benevolence and care of another. That's the only way we get in. That's the only way we get in. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to live in a perpetual state of insecurity and fear, not knowing, not knowing whether or not we're in a right relationship with you. But because of Jesus, we can have absolutely certain, absolute certainty of where we stand with you, not based on what we've done, but based on what you've done. So I pray that as we sing this song, that you would help some of us, God, to truly and authentically surrender to you. We can't do it. We need you. And so help us to surrender to you in these moments. I pray in Christ's name.